Celebration Rock. Critical conversations about music. Presented by 93X and Uprocks.com. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Big, big episode today. We are talking about the best albums of 2017, or I should say my favorite albums of 2017, and the favorite albums of my guest today, uh, which is Caitlin White. She is the managing editor of the music section for Uprocks.com, which is where I work. She is my boss. She is my colleague and friend, and uh, this is her second time on the podcast, so she's officially a friend of the pod, and uh, it's always great talking to her. She's a very insightful critic and music writer. Um, We talked about our favorite records of the year, some of the big albums that you're probably going to see on a lot of year-end lists, and then we also talked about some of our sleeper picks, albums that weren't even reviewed most places. So... Uh, this will be a great opportunity for you to hopefully get some great music recommendations to to catch up with albums that you haven't had a chance to hear. And isn't that the best reason to have year-end lists? You know, this whole idea of ranking albums, having a number one record or a number two record or number three record, you know, it's silly ultimately, right? I mean, there is no such thing as a record being empirically better than some other record. What it should really be about is an excuse to talk about music, to have fun, and just and to discover things. So I think you're going to do that in this podcast. Lots of good records that we're going to be talking about on this episode. But before we get to that, let's talk about our sponsor for this week, and it is our old friends at Harry's. Now, Derek, I'm talking to our producer here. You are a recent Harry's convert, am I right? That's correct. I actually entered the harrys.com slash rock and like bought some Harry's. And you I've did? Been, yeah, I, I, I did it exactly that way. I've been using it. It's great. I've been living, you know, I, I shave a lot. I shave my head as well as my face. And I've always been one of those guys where you go into the store and the pack of razors cost so much, like the refills that like, I would just work those things for as long as I possibly could. And now I get the razor refills sent to me every month. I got more than I know what to do with. I can change them all the time. They're always fresh. And I was really just sort of enjoying this. And I was like, I should talk about this on the podcast. (laughs) Because it, it really is, it's a delight. I have more razors now. At, at any time I want, there's a fresh one waiting for me. Uh, and, and they work great. And my head looks smooth and clean. So thank you very much, Harry's. And again, you took advantage of that special deal just for my listeners, harrys.com backslash rock. It also applies if you work on the podcast too, apparently. You, yeah. <laughs> so again, harrys.com backslash rock. You will get the limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last. Yeah, that's got those blades uh, that I was talking about. Uh, plus... Uh, foaming shave gel, special limited edition winter chrome, and emerald green handles on your razor, and you can get it personalized with engraving. It's a great holiday gift. So get it for yourself or get it for the hairy person in your life. And you get $5 off your order. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock to get that deal for my listeners. All right, guys. So me and Caitlin, we talked about our favorite albums of 2017. Um, I'm also going to be writing about this. On uprocks.com, my personal list is going up on the site on Tuesday. I think that's the 5th. Uh, this episode's going up on Monday, December 4th. I'm recording this a couple of days before that. I have not actually made my list yet. You'll notice in this episode that I'm a little, uh, you know, unsure of my rankings. I've, I, I've got like three records in the running for number one, and then I have another three records in the running for like the four through six slots. Um, I'm thinking I'll have that figured out by uh, December 5th. So if you want to see my specific rankings, you want to go to uprocks.com to check that out. I'm also going to have, I think, like 50 other records on that list. So you're definitely going to find something you haven't heard before. And I think you're going to hear a lot of records you haven't heard before if you check out that list. So definitely do that. Go to uprocks.com and read my personal list. But before then, here's me and Caitlin talking about our favorite albums of 2017. So, Kate, we're at the end of the year. 
and we're at the beginning of like a ton of lists that Uprox is going to be doing. Now, this, this podcast is going up on Monday, the 4th, which we all know is the last day of 2017. <laughs> so it's okay to do a year-end list now. There, there are people doing year-end lists in November. That's way too early. That's where I draw the line. It, it has to be in the month of December. At least, at least, at least December. I feel like what it's like an arms race now where, where I think the British magazines, they put up their lists in like the week of Thanksgiving. Yeah, and I feel like at some point, some website's going to be like, "Well, we're going to put ours up November first because we want to <laughs> well, be first. Last year, I think I did ours like midway through December, and we were like the last by fought by like a week of anyone. So this year, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to do it the first week of December." And then I, yeah, I was reading. I think it was Uncuts or Enemies List was already up when I was. Um, driving up for Thanksgiving, and I was just like, "Wow, yeah." There's just no, there's just no end to this pushback. Well, and, and that's it's hard because some artists are still releasing albums in December. Like Miguel's album comes out this Friday, and, and that's you know he's a pretty heavyweight guy in pop and R and B world, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and there's dynamic a there. there's a Chris Stapleton record, and we're talking. This is like uh, November 29th that we're recording this, so we're talking about December 1st. The Miguel record comes out December 1st. Chris Stapleton comes out mm-hmm. December 1st. U2 comes out December 1st. I thought it was I thought it was great that uh, Rolling Stone was still able to get U2 <laughs> at number three on their list. So they're like, we need the promo early to make number sure. Three. But it makes me think. I mean, I haven't heard the U2 record yet, and I've actually liked. The early singles, like I'm not a knee-jerk U2 hater like a lot of people, but uh, I'm just thinking if it's only number three on the Rolling Stone list, it, that feels almost like a demerit, you know? That's true. Or maybe they're trying to somehow push back against all the news stories about, from uh, what was it, from Jan's biography about how he was just like, I chose it as number one. Right. Very blatantly told to the public how that decision was made. Right. So, I mean, I have had such a hard time with the albums that are already out that are such high quality trying to pick my own number three. Like, I just don't see you two, even if it's the best record in 20 years or 10 years that they do, getting up to that top echelon. And we'll see. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm anxious to hear the record. It may, you know, it, maybe it's the Joshua Tree times five, you know, we'll see. <laughs> I don't think I it do, will be. I doubt it. I doubt I it. I really doubt it. But you never know. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt at this point. So, like, is okay. is our overall list, is that going to be up on Monday, the 4th? Yeah. Okay, so we can say what what Uproxx's number one album. Or should, we yeah. say, or should we just say that, you know what, we should just say people have to go to the site and find out. Yeah. What the number well, one you know album. What? I'm kind of, okay, I really thought that our choosing was going to be, like, super unique and no one else was going to choose it. But now I'm worried that everyone's going to put her because enemy did. You think as far as, are you saying what our number one record is? Did you just accidentally say what the number one record is on the Uproxx list? Because you said her. So we know it's not Kendrick Lamar on the Uproxx list. So we'll just leave it at that because there's lots of other hers that it could be at number one. But we shouldn't say what, because we want, because again, we're trying to, we're trying to gin up clicks here for Uproxx content. So we want people reading the blurbs that we pour our hearts and souls into. I will say, you know, and again, I work for Uproxx, so I'm, I'm biased. And of course you're the boss of the music section. So you're even more biased than I am, but I do think it's cool that we, we have the master list, but then we do genre specific lists and on the genre specific lists, all those albums are albums that aren't on the master list. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and the idea is to maximize the number of albums that we're, that we're talking about, because the thing with these year end lists is I think that the purpose that they serve, and I feel like you, you, you probably agree with this, is that it gives readers a chance to catch up with records that they might not have heard already. So exactly. instead of just sort of crowning the same two or three records that end up at the top of every list, you know, people can go and say, oh, I've, I haven't heard that album yet. And this site really likes it. So I, I should go check it out. I mean, talk about that as the editor of the section. Like, what is your thinking there uh, in terms of like how to compile a list, like the best way to do it? Yeah, so I started, I started doing sort of genre specific lists um, 
a couple years back when I was a freelancer, I did the folk and country list for BuzzFeed. So this is actually an idea that I took from Matthew Perpetua, who, you know, is such a completist with the year in music. He still runs his own site, Flux Blog, writing about any, any music he likes, totally not tied to anyone else's ideas. And I loved, I just loved that I got to, um, write about the albums that I thought were the best albums of the year. Not necessarily that were impacting, you know, pop culture or, or the mainstream, like a Kendrick Lamar or a Lord is, but, but the ones that I had the most on repeat or the ones that in my world were making a huge impact. And I thought that it was a really cool way to give people a window into those worlds as well. Like if you don't follow country music, which, you know, it hasn't really been a part of mainstream music criticism for the last decade or so. And I do think that's shifting, but it was a way to, to let people see what had been going on in that realm and, and give those artists like a little bit of chance to shine. Because I think a lot of times, you know, if you're a small indie band and you put out a record the same year that Kendrick Lamar you know that a lot of the attention that could have possibly gone to you is already taken up just because he's just such a giant in the music industry and well-deserved. I, I don't want to take anything away from Kendrick, but I don't know if it really does a lot of good for every single music publication to have him be the number one album of the year. Or, you know, for us, he is fairly high up on the list because I do think he deserves that. But we did, for the rap uh, list in particular, we did 30 other rap albums because there's just so much amazing music that's coming out in hip-hop. And just because Kendrick put an album out, I don't want people to not have a space to read about those records that are, you know, having a big impact on hip-hop. Right. And and the thing about these lists, too, is that no one's going to remember, even next week, where everything ranked on every list. People will probably remember that Kendrick was number one on a lot of lists. Um, but again, I think that the, the, the best thing that people can take from these lists is that it's just the, the records that they might not have heard about the recommendations that they can get. Um, I know like when I make my own list, that's something that I I try to keep in mind. I mean, you touched on this before the difficult thing I think with making these year end lists is there's, there's two competing impulses. One is that you want to rep the records that you loved the most but then there's also this instinctive like well i have to pick records that are sort of representative of the year you know that when people think Mm -hmm. about 2017 like what are the albums people are going to think about and it seems like at least on a lot of these institutional lists you know from you know whether it's rolling stone or pitchfork or stereo gum or whatever the whatever it is you know there's a definite eye on that and you know i i don't dispute the thinking behind that but again, it does result in a lot of sort of same samey lists. And I know for me, like when I look at lists, I, I tend to be drawn most like towards the more sort of idiosyncratic lists, like the personal, like 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 if one person made a list, or like on our site, if we have the master list, which is great. But these some of these genre lists are really cool too, for the reasons that you just said. Where, yeah, you already know about Kendrick, but like, what about these thirty other rap records that came out that? got a fraction of the publicity. You know, these are great records too, and maybe you'll hear something you haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you know me, I always love the most subjective things possible, but it, it has been funny moving into the role that I'm in at the site as the managing editor of, of thinking, needing to think in that big picture sense, needing to think in the mainstream pop culture, like what happened in music this year in America, basically, you know, in the world, and not just in Caitlin White's world. And I do think that's an important distinction to make, um, because it, you have a case like Jan Winter saying "You 2 is the album of the year, and, and just for your readers, that's a disservice to them, because that's just simply not true. Like, they just don't have that kind of, you 2 doesn't have that kind of cultural impact. And to pretend that they did. I mean, the, the album's coming out the 1st of December, so that alone lets you know that it wasn't really impacting 2017. Certainly the Joshua Tree Tour was, I think. But I just think it's important to to try and encapsulate the larger cultural conversations, but also leave space for the subjectivity, because like you, I'm, I'm super drawn to that. And I've also opened it up for writers to do their own top 20, you know, so right. people who have their own following like you, you know, you're doing your own list 
And I think that's because your perspective on those larger cultural conversations, I mean, a lot of times your role is to drive them. Your role is to help people discover the type of rock bands or the type of bands that they love and they, and they trust you for that because it's just been so many years that you have come through for them. Well, you know, I, I wasn't going to tell you this yet, but my number one record is the U2 record. And my number two record is the is Triplicate by Bob Dylan, the three volume collection of. I kid. I mean, I love Bob Dylan. I'm not knocking Bob Dylan, but no, you're right. You know that that um, that if you are like an institution to say that, um, uh, you know, a band or a record that might appeal to a certain demographic is somehow representative of an entire year. I mean, there is some malpractice you know involved mm. in that if that's what you're doing. But on this podcast. I want you to take off the managing editor hat and I want you to put on the Caitlin White hat. Okay. And I want you to talk about like what records matter to you the most in 2017. Like, do you have like a number one record yet? Like, do you like a record that's kind of head and shoulders above the rest? For me, it's Lord. Uh, And that record totally captured my heart. But the, like maybe like point zero zero one behind that is the scissor record control. And I just thought, you know, we have not seen a glow up like this, this trajectory for SZA in years. I mean, she had a couple mixtapes out. She was on TDE, you know, she, and then she got that big look from Rihanna where she was featured on anti and, and that was huge. But just for a debut um, to come out and have this kind of impact, you know, what is she? She's up for five or six Grammys. Like she's playing SNL. She just really dominated the year in a way for an artist who has been so openly um, struggling. You know, she has she's struggled and she has doubted herself and she has worked and worked and worked on these songs. And I think just to see that play off or to see that. Um, play out the way it did and pay off to me that it's just like one of those stories that I love the underdog who is the bell of the ball this year I love those stories and I think the music holds up too which sometimes it doesn't and it annoys me when an artist gets so much attention and I don't think the record deserves it but I totally think she deserves every ounce of praise she's gotten so for those people that maybe haven't heard the Scissor record yet, could you just briefly kind of give an idea of like what they should expect? Like, what does this record sound like? Yeah, it's it's sort of like, I mean, I love an artist like Scissor because I think she occupies a space that Rihanna and Beyonce have helped flesh out, which is half half R and B pop and half rap. Like a lot of her flows are much more similar to rapping than to singing. You know, I mean, I think Drake helped open that up as well. So anything in that realm, if, if you're familiar with how that sounds, that's that's how it is. But I think one of the things I love so much about it, I, it puts into words some female experiences that rarely get told. And she does it with such grace and passion. So there's been a lot of debate about um, one of her songs is called The Weekend. And she's basically talking about being in a relationship with a man who's in a relationship with other women. And so there's been this conversation about side chicks and monogamy and and all these things that are a huge part of a lot of women's lives that never get told. And I think that's super interesting thing to have be that mainstream in, in the pop world. Um, and I, I really can't think of an album that's more empathetic to like the particulars of romantic hearts and, and getting your heart broken or, or how to recover from that or how to stop those cycles. It's just so... It's just so singular, and I, I think it would technically be called R and B, but it, it feels like it supersedes that label as well. And you you alluded to this earlier about how there are a lot of artists over the course of a year who get a, a critical narrative attached to them, where they become sort of the it artist of like a week or mm-hmm. maybe a fortnight or so, and sometimes <laughs> it can be a little overwhelming, you know, just because the narrative seems to overwhelm the music, and certainly SZA was the it artist when her record came out. But it seems like the record has really sort of had legs. And I know that the people who love that record are so passionate about it. And it seems like she's really poised to move forward with a pretty strong career. Yeah, I hope she does. I mean, I wasn't a super big fan of her before this. And I think it's cool that 
she has been exposed to so many people because she was such a niche artist. And and to see that kind of very singular conversations about side chicks (laughs) enter into like Rolling Stone and her sort of responding to it on Twitter. It's just been sort of fascinating to watch that happen. So you you just mentioned two records. You said that that Lord was number one and like SZA was like right behind her. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, there's about three records that are bunched together at the top of my list. And one of them is Lord Melodrama. And Mm -hmm. I will say that uh, on the master list, I did write the blurb for Melodrama. I won't say where it is on the list. It's pretty high up. But you have to go to (laughs) uprocks.com to see exactly where that is to read that. I'm going to say it's a scorching hot blurb that I wrote. It's a very good blurb. Um, So Lord would be up there with Melodrama. Then uh, Father John Misty's Pure Comedy, a record that I have talked about repeatedly on this podcast. And then The War on Drugs, A Deeper Understanding. Those are my top three. And for me, like the thinking with these three, I feel like the Lord record is um, the best constructed record. It's a record Mm -hmm. that, um, it's a song cycle. It feels like like of a piece. It flows extremely well, especially in this year. Uh, which was sort of a down year for pop music in a lot of ways. You had a lot of very bloated records that came out from pop stars that were a little clunky and uh, mm-hmm. didn't flow very well. And you could talk, I think you could talk about the Taylor Swift record and the Kater, Katy Perry record and maybe some mm-hmm. others as, as examples of that. Melodrama's 44 minutes. It feels tight. There's not a wasted moment on it. So that's the case for that record. Pure comedy, of course, is the opposite of a tight record. Very long, very grandiose. Um, but to me, it's the record that probably moved me the most, um, that made me feel the deepest when I listened to it. And it also made me think a lot. Um, there's a lot of confounding things on that record, a lot of angry things on a record. Um, but it's not perfect. There are some stretches on there that if you were trying to make a perfect record, you would cut them out, you would tighten it up. Um, but in its imperfection... I think there's a lot of blood and guts on that record that, that, that draw me in. And then A Deeper Understanding for me is the record I feel like I'll, I'll be listening to the most in five years or ten years. It's, mm. the, you know, it, it's, it's the record that I just, I, I probably enjoy listening to it the most when it's on. I listen to that record every day. That's my three on my personal list. Okay, so we, we have a similar, so, so basically we have the, the same top three except for SZA and Father John Misty. Those mm-hmm. are like the differences. So we are influencing each other psychically, <laughs> I think, because I didn't know Father that. Father John Misty is high up on my list, too. I mean, I've always loved him. We were actually listening to Fear Fun uh, the other day in the car, and I was like, wow, he has, you can hear the growth. Like, I think Pure Comedy, and, and he has another album coming out top of 2018, so yeah. we're going to hear even more from him. But I think Pure Comedy is like the pinnacle of what he has been trying to create. If I can, if, John Misty. If I can name drop here a little bit, I've heard some songs <laughs> off of the really? new record, um, and they're great. I think that people oh, that didn't yeah. like pure comedy will love this new record because uh, it is kind of Misty getting back to more of like an I love you honey bear type mode of songwriting. Um, but... Again, in a different kind of way, a lot of blood and guts in those songs, too. Very you know, mm-hmm. heavy songs, but more personal, less political. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you said War on Drugs, Deeper Understanding is number three on your list. And you say you listen I to it every day. When we had talked, uh, last time I was on the podcast, you had heard a Deeper Understanding, but I hadn't heard it yet. And what did you call it? You called it like a widescreen or a panoramic version of... Um, Lost in the Dream, I think that's what you said. And I totally agree with that reading of it. It feels like a widescreen vision of Americana Psych. And I just think it, I just think the world is better for having it. It just feels like such a culmination. Again, for an artist who we've seen the progress, like we've heard him working and working, and it feels like on this record he had every tool that he needed. He had every element, and he was able to actually fastidiously weave them all together. See, I'm glad that you're saying these things so I don't need to just say them again. I feel like I just <laughs> sound like a broken record talking about a deeper understanding because it is such a, an important record to me. But um, it's interesting with this record because 
Um, I was talking about this with someone the other day, my friend Rob Mitchum, who's been on the podcast. He does a spreadsheet of all the top 10 lists that come out. And he, oh, that too does that. I yeah. was looking at that earlier. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. He's, uh, so it's like this big sort of composite list. Uh, so you, you get an idea of like who's number one overall, like on all the lists. And this mm-hmm. is something he's done, I, I don't know for how long, he's done it for several years. But he was talking about how a deeper understanding is sort of underperforming on a lot of year-end list doesn't seem to be mm. like showing up very high um and my my impression is that people maybe think lost in the dream is better and they like a deeper understanding but maybe they're lowering it because they feel like it's a little bit of a come down from lost in the dream whereas for me the records are very very close and there are times where i prefer a deeper understanding just because i feel like the the record making is a little bit better. Like I think he, mm-hmm. I think Adam has just gotten a little bit better at recording and, and building songs. I'm also a sucker for like long guitar solos and there's a lot of those on a deeper understanding. Um, I mean, I still love lost in the dream. I still think that's a great record, but I don't know. I'm hoping that people aren't forgetting how great this record is. Uh, is well, I-, I won't spoil, I won't spoil where it is on ours, but I'll say it's pretty high up. It's pretty and- high up. I think, here's two of my thoughts about that. I actually was talking with my brother, and he was saying the same thing that I like Lost in the Dream more. My brother lives in New York, and he doesn't have a car, and so I, and he's over on the West Coast for the holidays. So I asked him, have you listened to A Deeper Understanding while you're driving? And he hadn't. So we played it a bunch, and his opinion shifted. So I think, A, a lot of these people don't have cars. Like I, It's such a driving record to me that that is like the ideal state to be listening to it in. And secondly, I think uh, for me, I think a a deeper understanding made me rediscover how much I love guitar solos because I just haven't been listening to a ton of rock. Like we have this conversation again and again, rock place in pop culture has definitely shifted and people want to talk about that all the time. But as far as critics, I think it's, it's out of style to put a rock record at the top of your list. It's made by a white man. You know, like we really have a a big wave of support for diversity and support for women, especially with the things that are going on in the political world and the cultural, you know, outcry against sexual assault and things like that. I think people just want to see women and newer, younger artists and people of color at the top of lists. And I think that's working against Adam and, you know, it's what? just one of those things. Right, totally. And I will I will say as the white male in this conversation <laughs> that I am uh um I'm I'm resigning from all I, I I on behalf of white men, I think we should step aside this year. This was a pretty bad year for uh for white men. All right guys, more of my conversation with Caitlin about our favorite albums of the year will be coming up shortly, but before then I want to tell you about my book which came out in 2016. It's called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. It's a book about music rivalries. Beatles versus Stones, Oasis versus Blur, and there's like 15 other rivalries after that. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know about this book probably already. I've, I talked a lot about it when it first came out, but I'm, I'm mentioning it now because we're in the middle of the holiday season, and if you're looking for a present, uh, the book is there. It's ready, and it's a great stocking stuffer. And if... Uh, You check your favorite online retailers. I've noticed that a lot of places have recently lowered the price. So get the book. It's not that much. It's only going to cost you about 10 or 11 bucks. Or if you go to your neighborhood bookstore, the book is available there too. It'll cost a little bit more money, but you'll be supporting a local business and you can feel good about that. I also want to throw this in. I have a new book coming out in 2018. It's called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It's a book about sex, drugs, dad rock and dead rock stars (laughs) so and there's other things in the book too but i'm going to be talking more about that book of course as 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 we get closer to the release date in 2018 it comes out may 8th if you're curious but we'll we'll be talking about it more next year but if you want to pre-order the book it's available right now for pre-order and maybe you want to get that for the person in your life that loves music too like you can give them the the print off saying I don't have a present for you now, but you're going to get this book in five months. <laughs> so it's something for them to look forward to. So again, you get my first book now. It's called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. 
And you can also get my second book called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. That comes out in May, but you can pre-order it now. So get those books for your music lover in your life for Christmas. I think they'll love it. Okay, so here's me and Kate talking more about our favorite albums of 2017. We've kind of said the top three on your list already. Do you have a number four? Like, I'm not sure. Like, have you made your whole list yet? Like, um, like do you have a number four of, yet? I mean, kind of. Yeah, I do have a number four. And, um, well, I've been debating it back and forth. And, and because of this podcast, it was sort of forced to, to solidify it. But I think it's Jason Isbell, uh, the Nashville sound for me. I, I think there may not be a better living songwriter. Like, I... His songwriting, I mean, especially if you're drawn to the folk and country t- tradition, which I am, but the narratives that he puts together, they have this sweetness to them, and they're so poignant. And then you know that they're rooted in, like, a very bitter, tough past. Like, he has faced down addiction and totally risen from those ashes, you know, built this beautiful family, built this partnership with Amanda Shires, built up arguably the entire genre of Americana in the mainstream consciousness. And I think it's just the contrast between what he's been through and what he's able to create now just makes his work even more meaningful and precious. Yeah. And this is again, an area where, where you and I have synchronicity because like, on my list, I'm, I'm still working on my list. So like I have that, those three records that are sort of vying for number one. And then I have another group of three rest, three records that are sort of vying for four through six. And mm-hmm. one of them is Jason Isbell's The Nashville Sound. And just to kind of echo some of the things that you were saying, you know, like we, we were talking about this cultural conversation, like the records that are making the most impact on how we see the world or, or, what, or what people are talking about. And one of the things I've, I really appreciate about Jason, along with just his great songwriting and his great band. Like I saw Jason Isbell in the 400 unit four times this year, which was crazy. I saw them a lot and they were great every time. Um, but he, he just strikes me as an artist who is always going to do his own thing no matter what. And he's constructed this bubble around himself that allows him to do that. Like he is now at a point where people know that every record he makes is going to be good and there's going to be great storytelling songs on them and it's going to be well played and there will be times where he sort of intersects with the mainstream, but for the most part, he's going to be doing his own thing. He's going to be touring all the time. He's going to be playing packed shows. And um, I, I just find that really inspiring. I always love it when artists are able to do that, when they find a way to do their own thing. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, being uh, you know, a guy, I, mean, I, th- I think he's 38, being a 38-year-old songwriter who writes songs about people in the middle of the country trying to figure out a way to live, you know, dealing with personal issues, dealing with sick family members. This is not the most fashionable thing in the world to be doing. This is not something that naturally sells a whole lot of records. And, and certainly in country music, you know, he isn't an artist that has any chance really of ever getting on the radio. Um, and yet mm-hmm. he had a top 10 record this year. He had a top five record. You know, mm-hmm. he's one of the most respected people in his field. And he did it just by being really good. You know, and I just think that's an amazing thing to behold uh, when you see people who can build a career like that. Exactly. And, and build a career like that after going through, you know, the trauma of addiction. Like, this is someone who has been at rock bottom. And I think for people in the middle of the country or for people who are not trendy or don't have like the lifestyles that they see portrayed in the media constantly as desirable to see someone who has been through that something so tough and totally, you know, not just survived it, but arguably is even better off after going through it. Right. I think that's really important just to have that story out there. And, you know, I think another thing worth noting with, with Jason, too, is, you know, th- there was that story, I guess that was last month, where Eminem did that freestyle talking about Trump, and he called out his fans that voted for Trump and basically said, you know, if you voted for Trump, I don't want you as a fan, mm-hmm. um, which I personally actually thought that was a pretty bold thing for him to do. I, I know some people didn't want to give him props for that, but 
he is an artist that I think that there is a lot of intersection between his fan base and the people that voted for Trump. So oh, totally. I think it was a pretty big stand for him to take. But on, on, uh, on the Nashville sound, Jason hits on that note repeatedly. I mean, mm-hmm. Trump is definitely a presence on his record, even though Trump is never mentioned by name. But you have songs like White Man's World or that song uh, Hope the High Road, you know, mm-hmm. which are pretty, I think, directly referencing the sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, the, the, the waking nightmare <laughs> that we've mm-hmm. all been going through the last, you know, 12 months or so. And in laying it on the line and saying, like, look, I think this is wrong. This, this, what this guy represents is not what I think America should be. And, you know, Jason, he lives in Nashville. A lot of his fans are in the South. And I'm sure there are people who don't like it when he plays White Man's World in his shows. Mm-hmm. So I feel like in his own way, even though his audience is much smaller than Eminem's, he is confronting people uh, where they live. You know, he's not preaching to the choir with on his records and uh, i think that's another thing to uh salute him for mm-hmm. for, sure. for um, sure so um i mentioned that there were two other records sort of like in my middle i guess of my top 10 that is still taking shape um but the two like two other records that i really love that are in this group would be the julian baker record turn out the lights and julian was on this show and uh she was a great guest and I love that record. I think it's such a powerful, sort of gut-wrenching, beautiful record. And then uh, the Gang of Youth record, Go Farther in, in Lightness, uh, Gang of mm-hmm. Youth, a band from Australia, um, a band that I've described them as like every mid-2000s indie band playing at once. <laughs> you know, like there's elements <laughs> of the National, elements of the Walkman. You can hear a little bit of Gaslight Anthem in, in uh, the lead singer, uh, Dave, his voice. Um, but there's also another side of the record where there's these beautiful sweeping ballads played by string quartets, almost like an Eleanor Rigby type vibe. Um, you know, it's this sweeping, big, beautiful, dramatic, ambitious 80 minute record spread over 16 tracks. Um, that for me is like, I guess, my sleeper pick out of these six records that I've mentioned so far because that record is huge in Australia and has garnered virtually no publicity here in America. Um, I think Which the band... It's so strange. I think that's part of, I mean, having this conversation about who we put at the top of our list and who we, you know, who we cover as a site is like, there, there isn't a lot of exploration or discovery being done anymore. Like, it used to be, I mean, isn't that what Pitchfork's sort of like founding ethos was? Like, these records aren't covered anywhere else. And we're going to cover them and we're going to make them important because they're important to us. And like, I don't see that happening a lot. I mean, on any, on any of these music sites, but it's something of course that I want us to do, but you know, you came to me with this record and you're like, it's a big deal in Australia, but no one's ever talked about it. And I listened to it and I'm just like, how has no one, like, how is this not in everyone's top 10? Like it is a fabulous record. And it's, it's sort of fascinating to see and saddening to see that it's not, everywhere in the u.s yeah i mean i i feel like every critic out there has like a a collection of records or a collection of artists that are are almost like their pet artists you know people that (laughs) they feel like i love these people more than it seems like anyone else does and i want the rest of the world to know about them and you know i think it's hard sometimes to find an opportunity to, to talk about those artists, I mean, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on that. But, I mean, it mm-hmm. seems to me that, you know, like when you write about an artist who's unknown, you have to almost spend half the story just justifying that you're writing about them. You know, you mm-hmm. have to, like, make a case that this is worth paying attention to um, because there's such an ingrained sort of expectation now that everything that we talk about you know, we use the word relevance. Like relevance to me is the worst word to ever happen to music writing because what it Mm. does, I think to me, that is a cudgel that is used to punish artists who don't perform well commercially. Mm -hmm. You know, know, the artist that we talk about is relevant. You know, it's a compliment to them, but to me, it's more about sort of putting down artists who who don't satisfy that criteria. You know what I mean? It's more about like, well, these people are relevant, 
which means that you are not relevant, which means that what you're doing isn't a value because it isn't generating enough money for people or it's not generating enough clicks for, for websites. And, um, you know, but it's also, it's also something you could lose at any moment, right? Like it's, you could fall out of relevance at any moment. And I, I don't like that because well, it's inherently that's not really how music works for me in my life. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the way that we define relevance, it's inherently ephemeral, you know, that mm-hmm. it, it only lasts in the moment. And, you know, I'm not saying that these things should be ignored. I mean, obviously, if if you have a hit song or or you're if you if people are streaming you, like by the by the tens of millions, like right now, you know, people should be talking about you. You, you should be written about. It is interesting, yeah. um, but it shouldn't always be at the expense of people that are never going to have those kind of numbers. But maybe over the course of ten years, they build an audience, they build a connection with people uh, that lasts a lot longer. Uh, than maybe more of a passing thing. I don't know. I think there's room for both sometimes, and it mm-hmm. does seem like sometimes the the people that actually need writers, like they aren't getting the help sometimes that I, I think that they need. Um, mm-hmm. So let's, let, in the interest of that, since we are both critics here and we have the power to maybe give people a little bit of ups, you know, Gang of Use for me is like, I guess, like one of my sleeper picks. Do you have any sleeper picks? Like records that you... My sleeper pick is Land of Talk. Do you know them? Yeah. Yeah. So, um... I don't think I knew they had a new record, though. Yeah, yeah, it was... She's been on hiatus for like seven years, I think. I think her last record came out in uh, 2010. So, Elizabeth Powell, um... She's the front woman, and uh, I, I guess I would call it maybe like dream punk. Like it sort of has dream pop, but it sort of has like those jagged guitars too, and just great lyrics. You know, just like a really straightforward dreamy rock record with with female vocals, and that is just like everything that I love. Um, no, you know, and like you said, no big narrative really, like no huge blips, no late night, none of the things that make news stories these days. But when I, when I would get into my car and think, what do I want to listen to? This record was one of the ones that just popped into my mind every time of like, I wanted to keep listening to it all throughout the year. And I, and I got to see them live when I was in June and I was up in Canada for um, Flood Island Festival. And they were awesome lives too. Like I haven't been to a rock show that felt like that for a long time. So that's my sleeper pick. The the album is called um, <sighs> Blinking on it, of course. Land of Talk, Life After Youth. And since we're, you know, and this feels good to be exposing the sleeper picks. Do you have another sleeper pick that you want to slip in? I know you. I know. I know you. I, I said just to have one, but is there another record that comes to mind that you really love that you feel like is maybe being overlooked? Yeah, I think the new Hiskel Messenger album is totally being overlooked called Hallelujah Anyhow, and he has an interesting story. Um, his Golden Messenger, you know, I don't know. He was in a ton of, he basically did a ton of other projects. It was like one of those things where he had been a musician for a long time. M.C. Taylor, he lives in North Carolina, and he hooked up with this label that I love called Paradise of Bachelors, and they really try to preserve um, old folk music and, and re, reissue, you know, classics that have been overlooked, but they also try and cultivate, like, new young artists in the folk and country tradition, which, you know, there's not a lot of infrastructure for that right now that's not Nashville pop. So they worked with him for a long time, and then he got signed to Merge Records, um, which is obviously a huge look at such a, a storied label. But he put out um, Heart Like a Levy last year, and it, and it was like an, one of those albums. A lot of people talked about it, and and then he put out another one, Vestipul, and then he put out Halloween Anyhow this year. So I think because there was so many albums, people maybe you know, it's not as relevant if there's if there's not a shortage or something like that. But I think this is probably the best record that he's done, and he has a fairly um, extensive discography. And I listen to it all the time, but I didn't see it getting a lot of attention elsewhere, which was funny to me because some of those stuff even from last year got a ton of 
attention. Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's definitely burnout sometimes where people yeah. feel like, hey, I just said nice things about this person. I don't need to say more. <laughs> you know, it's like slow down. You know, slow down with the with the great records. Um, but sometimes the result of that is that really good albums get overlooked. So right. it's a good one to mention. I, I want to mention a band that I like a lot that I, unfortunately, I, I, I did not have a chance to write about when the record came out. I, I discovered it a little too late, so I'm going to get it into my year-end piece. But it's this band called Rat Boys from Chicago, and they put out a record uh, this past summer called GN. And uh, it's a really beautiful record. I, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe this. It, they sort of like, it's sort of like a punk country vibe to mm. it, where really kind of beautiful songs you know there's some like uh some uh steel guitar on on some tracks but it has more of like a like a raw i guess you might even say emo type vibe to it it's it's on uh the, the label that put it out is called top shelf and they typically put out more Love sort of more sort of punk and emo stuff um but yeah the center of the band is this uh, woman named julia steiner and she's a really great singer too i really like her voice and um, again, like you said, there's really no narrative with this record other than it just being a really great record. It, it, it was one of those albums that um, someone actually told me about on Twitter. I, I think mm-hmm. I might have done like a mid-year list or something saying like my favorite albums of 2017 so far, like in June. And someone tweeted at me. It's like, have you heard of the heard of Rat Boys? And I had it and I, I checked it out and it just, it just blew me away. And I wanted to read more about the band, and I, I don't even know if this record was reviewed uh, no. in a lot of places. Um, but it's a really great record, um, and I think, I don't know exactly where it's going to end up on my list. It's definitely a top 20 record, though, for me. And I'll just say this. There were a lot of indie rock records I got written about that are a lot crappier than this album. <laughs> this album is a lot better. Uh, then most, and, and I heard a lot of indie rock records this year, and th- this was one of my favorites. And like you said about the Atlanta Talk record, it was just one of those albums that if I was working and I needed something to listen to and I didn't know what to put on, that I just gravitated to the Rat Boys album. It just really mm-hmm. just hit me in the right spot. So um, I'm gonna, so people who are listening, I'm gonna up that record, check that one out. It's really good, and. I'm going to get it in my top 10 list. I'm sorry I didn't write about it sooner. You know, it, it, I, I wish I had. It was definitely one of those albums that kind of got away from me. But, you know, that's the we thing. Did, ab- we did do an interview with them, a freelancer. Oh, really? I really enjoy his taste, Dan Bogosian. I probably butchered his last name. I've never said it out loud. But he uh, did a little mini profile on them back in June. Well, Dan. So I had them a little bit on my radar, but um, well, I don't think I listened to it a ton. Well, Dan. If you're listening, you're you're the MVP here. You stepped up. <laughs> you represented this record. Someone needed to He's do it. Great. He's um, great. Can so, I uh, can I interject for a second on the on the issue of relevance? Because I I sort of had a question about this. Yeah. I you know I get obviously you want to spotlight uh, unknown artists on a list like this, and that's a great opportunity. And I think that's one of the the best functions of critical commentary in 2017. But I'm a little confused because you guys were talking about. Uh, you know, when you're when you're putting stuff towards the top of your list, that relevance does matter. You want there to be some cultural conversation about an artist, and I'm sort of curious as to where does success factor into that. You guys both like the Lord record; it's very high up on the list this year. That's a record. You know, it's not in the top 200 anymore. It's going to sell a lot less than Pure Heroin. It didn't yield any top 40 hits. You know, on the radio side, we're sort of looking at melodrama as a record that Lord's going to have to recover from next time out. Like, does that not, the record not connecting with the audience, does that matter at all when you're evaluating whether it's good? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, I don't know if that record was necessarily designed to like roll out lots of singles. Like, I don't know if that was designed to be a radio record necessarily. I could be wrong. On that, but. I don't think I don't think you can say melodrama didn't connect with the audience because that's just not true. If it didn't perform commercially in the way that some other major pop blockbuster albums do, that is definitely something to talk about. But I mean, I I wrote a piece about Lord that she shared on her own Twitter, 
which was a huge, obviously, highlight of this year for me. And I got, you know, hundreds of messages from her fans about the album. So, and long message, you know, like, it really connected with, um, I think, teen girls and, and women and young women in their 20s. And I don't know whether those... Uh, that demographic is still buying records. You know, I don't know if they still listen to terrestrial radio that much. I think they're more living on on social media networks, on Instagram, you know, streaming albums and, and talking about it with their friends online. And I think that is also a measure of success. Like, you still see people talking about melodrama all the time. Like, yesterday someone took the album cover and hung it in the Louvre because that's one of the lyrics on one of the songs. So I think that it's still influencing culture in a major way, even if it's not performing per se in the same way that um, Pure Heroin did. And even the music industry has changed since, you know, those album sales are much harder to get even a couple years out. So I think that while commercial performance is really something that is a factor for mainstream impact, I don't know if that's the only measure I use for what impacts culture. Yeah, Does and, that make sense? Yeah, and to kind of like talk about your like your larger point about like <clears throat> I think you were asking like what is the formula or like how do you like what is the combination of like significance and personal love that goes into determining like what your ranking is and like for me I don't know there's really no set thing it's it, it is more of a gut thing I will say that like when I think about like the top five or six albums like most of them I, w- I mean all of them are albums that like I I love. And most of them, I would say, are not particularly relevant in the way that we're talking about, like, pop music. I have to say that as someone who, um, you know, like, pop music is a little confounding to me right now because I don't really know what goes into determining what matters. It seems like we're in a state of flux, I think, with... Mm-hmm. Certainly with the pop charts, like how they're determined and how it's become so dominant with streaming and uh, even like songs on SoundCloud now can be like huge hits, yeah. and mm-hmm. um, which I think is really exciting because it opens the door for artists who aren't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, entrenched in the music industry. Like, there's, like this year there were a lot, of, a lot of young upstart artists who like took over the charts, whereas the mm-hmm. establishment pop stars didn't do as well yeah. in terms of pop chart performance. Like Taylor Swift was not a juggernaut on the charts this year, uh, on the pop charts. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if like those new upstart artists actually can build a career or if it's so now, if the music industry, like that, that pop industry is now so much in the boat for like, you know, the person that has a hit right now and then they're gone the next day. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see, like, you know, like how Post Malone or someone like builds a career. Like, is he going to have a career that lasts longer than a couple years? I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I think some of them are not designed that way. And I guess I sort of wonder, is it a question of intent? Like, I think this is a, a big swing kind of pop record for Lord. Like, she yeah. was looking for sort of that you know, Taylor Swift kind of company. And yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Well, no, she wasn't. She said Max Martin told her how to change green light to make it a hit. And she refused. She wanted to be her own off kilter weird self. I think that's always been her goal. Yeah. I mean, like when I listen to the record, I feel like it's an album. I feel like it was made as an album and not as a bunch of singles. Like I, I think that there's songs on there that you, uh, could imagine being singles, but I don't know. I, 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 and I feel like that's even true of the Taylor Swift record in a lot of respects that, um, especially if you listen to like 1989 and mm. reputation back to back, like 1989 seems like there are definite songs on there that were going to launch into the stratosphere. Like they were designed to do that and they did. And it was very successful in that regard. Whereas with reputation, I do feel like it was more of an album. Like I feel like whether you mm-hmm. love that record or not, it was designed as like an album type statement from her. And she wanted to say what she had to say. And I kind of wonder like if maybe there's a feeling that um, like, like for some of those, for the pop stars on that level, if that is maybe a better way to go rather than chasing hits at this point, Mm -hmm. like Lord has this cult of fans that love her and there's a big enough 
group of them where she can do an arena tour, you know, mm-hmm. going, you know, then it's probably going to be a pretty huge tour next year. Um, it's certainly a better way to go if you're looking for permanence. Yeah. I yeah. I think, well, I think the other thing about melodrama is I think over the next five years, it'll be similar to her debut. Like pop music will sound like melodrama. Like she influences those changes before they happen. And I think there's a ton of, singles that sounded so much like Royals that became number ones, but like we all knew they sounded like Lord. Yeah. And there is the other factor too of like, there's radio relevance and there's internet relevance. Mm -hmm. And in the world of top 10 lists, it's definitely internet relevance. And you could argue whether or not that is actually important in terms of an artist's career. And I know Derek, as a radio guy, you would, you, uh, you probably mm. have some skepticism about that. Well, uh, well, my thing, you know, because we, we it, the record didn't stream either. So, right. I mean, it streamed, but not at, not at, at, at what you would say is really successful level. So I get that this record's all over top 10 list and people love it. Yeah. And there's a certain kind of relevance that comes from that, but that's also, a community that's stumping for it and creating that relevance rather than people actually listening to it over and over again and really impacting the culture in that way. And so that, that to, there, there is a bit of a disconnect to me. Though. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, it... but you look at the most streamed songs and usually they're by artists who no one knows. Right. And... Like in, in, at least in the music industry, like cultural critic world that I occupy and that Haydn occupies, like, well, well, it's like it's kind of the same thing like with Kanye West. That like Kanye West has not been mm. the most successful rapper in terms of the pop charts in yeah. probably ten years. I mean, like like Jesus and um, like Life of, pa- Life of Pablo. Like if you if you were to compare him to like Drake or something, just to use him as an obvious example, he doesn't stream nearly as well as, as he does. But like Kanye is like a cultural figure. Like, he has a le- he has a level of celebrity that trans that. Uh, towers over people that maybe yeah. have way bigger hits than him, like in the last couple of years anyway. And I think Lord is probably in that same class at this point, but I don't know. It, again, like pop music is in, is in such a weird state of flux right now. I have no idea what it will look like next year or the year mm-hmm. after that. And, you know, and again, like kind of going back to the, to the relevance thing and why another reason why I hate that word is for some of the th- reasons that you're hinting at, Derek. I feel like it's a hard thing to pin down, yeah. and I think it. I think each person frames it in their own way. Um, you know, there is no set definition for what relevance is. It's like it's in the eye of the beholder, in a lot of different respects, and it it can be. Um, it is tangible in some respect. You can you can um, quantify it, but it is also constructed. I think absolutely. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's an interesting contrast to me because what people are listening to is more tangible now than ever, but what people talk about it seems to be almost more ephemeral at the same time. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Caitlin, about that? Well, I don't think I don't think the numbers tell the whole story. Like, I don't think everyone that listens to the Lord record is listening to it on Spotify. I mean, it was a it was a number one album, wasn't it? So I think people bought it. You know, people. Like I said, they interact with it. They create fan art around it. She's headlining every festival. Like, I think there's other factors aside from just, like, these measurable digital counts we have of these songs being played. Um, and there's also depth of passion with reaction, too. Like, there's people that, you know, again, maybe fewer people bought that record than, you know, some other record. But... I feel like that record elicited maybe more passionate responses from the people who loved it than maybe other records did. I mean, that, that, that's mm-hmm. my, that's you know my what, feeling anyway. And it's also a great what, record. At the end of the day, that's what matters most to me. It's a really great record. And uh, that's why it's high on my list. I agree. But I, I think what an interesting tangent to this is, is that Kendrick Lamar's um, record, Damn, actually did have the numbers, too. I think it sold, it had sold, what, 600,000 copies within a couple months of coming out? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, it, it had the, the across-the-board critical approval and was actually performing well commercially, which I think is pretty rare now, yeah, as Derek's saying. Yeah, I mean, Kendrick Lamar, he's almost approaching, like, 
what Outcast had in the early 2000s or like mm. even like what Stevie Wonder had in the mid 70s like where you have huge commercial success and just like unanimous critical adoration you know like right. like I feel like Outcast at the time of Stankonia was like to me that's like the closest thing in my lifetime maybe to like a Beatles type thing like, yeah. it seemed like mm. everyone loved Outcast you know you could not find a person who didn't like them um and this was before you know like like hey ya came out because i feel like hey ya maybe tipped some people in a negative direction just because they like got sick of that song it was like everywhere but like when outcast put out miss jackson as a single and that was a huge hit and it was like every indie band was covering miss jackson yeah. and like everyone loved miss jackson so like so they kind of had that and then yeah like like stevie wonder when he was wearing, winning like album of the year every year in the mid 70s like he had that and i feel like kendrick now um you know if i mean damn is a great record but like if it had just been like pretty good it probably would have also been a unanimous number 1 like there's so much mm-hmm. goodwill toward him right now mm-hmm. um you know, uh, that people just want him to do well. But, you know, the record is great, too. Where is Dan falling on your list? Um, you know, it'll probably be a top 20 record for me. I really, you know, it's one of those records where I really love it. It's probably my least favorite of his recent run. I'm kind of in that same boat with you. Um, like, I, I, I thought, um, I think To Pimp a Butterfly is in the running for, like, album of the decade. I, I love that mm-hmm. record. And I love... Um, Kind of similar to pure comedy, I love the messiness of To Pimp a Butterfly, mm-hmm. and it overreaches, and like, there's definitely things on there where if you were trying to build a perfect record, you would maybe trim here and there you know, on To Pimp a Butterfly, but the excess of it is part of why I love it. Like, Damn, mm-hmm. to me, um, is a more focused record in a lot of ways. Um, it, it's, it, it, you know, it's, I think it's harder hitting in a lot of ways, but I don't know, I just... I, it doesn't quite. I don't love it as much as like the, the the two records that preceded it. Yeah, I agree. Actually, I think it's overrated, and I do think it's good still. But I just think it's overrated. Like in no world would I select that as the best record of this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely. I would. I would put SZA over. I mean, I did put SZA over. I think that Control is better than Dan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of a like obligatory thing with damn it feels, it feels like, like it yeah you know i feel like when that record came out people put it at number one and they're like unless there's an earthquake this is not getting knocked <laughs> off number one you know like yeah. and hopefully you know nothing embarrassing will come out about kendrick lamar that will like make us not want to put him at number one anymore because that definitely happened with some records that came out this year that just kind of got canceled because of scandals that came up like the power uh, bottom like the, like the yeah. power bottom record which um we don't need to get into this now I, we have to wrap up here but like that record that i i wrote a review of that record that was very glowing and then yeah. the allegations against one of the members came out the next day and mm-hmm. two days later that record was wiped off the face of the earth never to be seen again i still have a cd promo copy that i got from the label, wow. and I don't know if I should put that on eBay. I don't know if that's like a collector's <laughs> item at this point. Um, but I, I feel like that record is not going to be pressed into a CD <laughs> ever again. I, I wonder how many CD copies there are of, of that Power Bottom record. And then, of course, you have only a few. And then you have the brand new record, Science Fiction, which um, I think is a great record. But then the Jesse Lacey story popped up at the end i don't know i maybe i shouldn't be bringing this up at the end of the podcast this is almost good for a whole episode of a podcast (laughs) um but i feel like that record would have been in the running for a lot of lists and now oh yeah i think i would have put it in our i would have put it in our top 10 i think yeah i loved that album yeah at any rate to be continued (laughs) with that conversation caitlin thank you so much for coming on here it's always a pleasure talking with you yes Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I guess I'll see you on Slack at some point. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, take care. All right, bye. There you have it. Me and Kate dug into the year. Derek jumped in at the end there. Talk about Lord. Talk about how Lord is overrated, I think. (laughs) 
Is that what you were doing? You're knocking I, our Lord? I actually like that Lord record. Our Lord and Savior. You had to be the descent. You, you just champing at the bit. You could not hold back. You had to knock it, if didn't there, you? If there's anything, I do sort of think that the idea of Jack Antonoff as a commercial songwriting force, uh, it might be a bit of wishful thinking on people's <laughs> parts. But I, I, there are a lot of, like the, the Louvre song that she mentioned, the, the, yeah. it, with... That's a great song. Like, right. there's a lot of good songs on that record. I'm Dude, sorry, we got to pause this for now. <laughs> we will probably revisit this at some point. Guys, thank you so much for listening uh, to this episode. Um, I want to thank Derek, our producer. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much for supporting the show, talking about us on social media, uh, you know, giving us ratings on iTunes. All these things help grow the show. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, I, I just want to do a quick plug for some recent stories that I had on uprocks.com. Last week, I profiled Jeremy Enig, late of the band Sunny Day Real Estate. He put out a record in October called Ghosts, which is really good. And it's been pretty much ignored so far. And it's because Jeremy right now doesn't have a record label. He doesn't have a manager. He doesn't have a publicist. He's basically a one-man operation. And uh, I, I interviewed him, and we talked about the record, and we just talked about being a DIY artist at this moment and how he's looking to reboot his career. He wants a manager. He wants a record label, but he's not quite sure how to go about doing it. So uh, that was a pretty fascinating story. Um, I also talked to Mickey Hart of The Grateful Dead. He has a pretty bonkers solo record out called Ram You. And we talked about that, but we also talked a lot about The Grateful Dead and his history in the band. And we talked about Long Strange Trip, which uh, was a documentary about the band that came out earlier this year. We talked about that documentary on this podcast. I love the movie. Mickey Hart does not. <laughs> so we talked about that. That was pretty interesting. Um, I also reviewed uh, the latest Chris Stapleton record, Songs from a, from a Room Volume 2. So you want to check that out as well. Um, guys, thanks again for listening. Uh, and we will uh, look forward to uh, talking at you next week.